Thanks for joining us on our U.S. Soccer President Candidate Forum Series. I'm Justin Brunken with the American Outlaws, and our goal is to help foster positive change for the Federation and U.S. Soccer by giving the candidates a platform to talk to and listen to our members, the fans. These forums are only possible because of our members' support. So feel free to become a member yourself, if you aren't already, at theamericanoutlaws.com. Visit our election page at voao.theamericanoutlaws.com forward slash ao dash election dash center. Yeah, I know it is a tad long, but it's where you can uh, see candidate questionnaires and the schedule for all the rest of the live forums. We'll see you at the next game in the stands. Listen and see if they address your issues and thoughts. Thanks and enjoy. technical difficulty and uh, the recording uh, of this forum started just a few minutes into it. And I think if there's one thing that, that's common, people want more respect, more openness, and they want more dialogue. It doesn't make sense to have a decision that's generated one day when you wake up from 30,000 feet in Chicago. Um, it's not respectful when that happens, and it happens constantly. I know that for people in the trenches, like fans, like state association presidents and executive directors, um, and, and, and like other people in the game, like I, I in particular have been in the trenches or was for seven years in the development academy. We've all experienced the same thing. Uh, decisions that come out of nowhere from Chicago that leave you scratching your head that um, that not only are kind of shocking in their process or lack thereof, but are um, shocking and stunning because in most cases I have found they're wrong. And the reason they're wrong is because they're made in a corporate boardroom without taking into account the input the people in the trenches have. So when I say trenches, I say it with the highest respect because people in the trenches really can give the positive feedback and information. And again, if I distill it down to my more narrow area, most recently in youth soccer, the development academy, there are a ton of strictures that have, that came down in my seven years that affected my son and other kids I coached, um, that sucked the joy out of the game, that, that seemed to make sense in a boardroom, but actually did not at all lend themselves to creating, uh, joyful players. And it's one of the reasons why we have so uh, many unhappy players or we produce so many unhappy players or they have to get distance from the system to get their joy back. So I guess transparency means openness and honesty in regard to that. It means, pra it be it means doing things smartly, purposely having openness and transparency in the decision-making process. And I would also say in the contract process, one thing that's a huge issue right now, obviously, is the U.S. soccer contract with some. Um, there are very clear nonprofit guidelines that need to be followed in that situation. Um, and uh, I, I counsel nonprofits or for-profits that do transactional uh, contracts with, with uh, nonprofits. And there are very important steps that must be followed, and, um, and, and that goes to transparency as well. And I can pledge that that's the way it will work in my uh, administration. Okay. 
Um, next question is regarding youth development. Do you think that U.S. soccer should identify a playing style in your experience? And if so, uh, what style? And, and with that, what, would you, what changes do you think you would make as president um, to the existing coaching development system that we have in the U.S. right now? Right. Okay. Great question. Um, I think imposing one style right now makes no sense, um, one particular style. What we need to do is bring more players into the game uh, from all styles, you know, from all ethnic cultures, um, for sure. Um, we, we study, and this is what I think uh, is common uh, in terms of some of the 30,000 feet boardroom decisions that just are, you know, in their literal sense, ignorant. We go and study Belgium because Belgium has 11 million people in the country and it's, it's created, you know, 20 to 30 world-class players in the last number of years that have succeeded in, in, in the Premier League and other places. And we say, let's study Belgium. How do they do it? And then they hire a consultancy and then they say, we got to do it exactly like that. Now we're going to study Iceland, obviously, because they're the flavor of the day. And don't get me wrong, I think all of this should be studied, and I've studied six countries. What I know, though, is all of that should be modulated for what makes America different. To try to force it down everyone's throat and say, this is the way it will be. You know, America is different. If you look at a 16-year-old at the Everton Academy, and, and he's still playing in the Everton Academy, that means he's made a decision that he's either going to be a pro footballer or he's going to be um, a tradesman. He's not going to college. He's off track. In our case, most, if not all, uh, players going through the system, whether it be ODP or Development Academy, even if their dream is to be pro, they're going to college first. So that's just one example of why when we study other countries, Chris, that we have to modulate what we learn. So I think it's great to study, but to say that we're going to put it wholesale uh, doesn't make any sense. Um, in terms of forcing one style down people's throats, I, I don't think so. We, we, we have the chance to be, um, you know, the best country in the world someday because we have the best athletes, the biggest numbers, um, and we have the ability to have all of these um, uh, cultural backgrounds come together. I could see something, for instance, where we, we would rely on our size and strength because of diet and athletic training advantages, where we would have great athleticism and ball-winning ability in the air, which is, you know, which is the – which is the more physical part of it and less the, and less the technical part of it, um, and yet have uh, a, 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 um, uh, a, a ball control, you know, short, uh, short passing uh, style within other, certain other segments. For instance, I don't think we've really developed a world-class number 10 ever. Is that possible? Absolutely. And um, so, you know, and a, st a style that, um, incorporated the best that we have athletically with with something that matches uh, the world technically uh, in in a in a, a, in a technical game would be unbeatable, right? So it doesn't seem to me that that one style only works. Um, kind of switching gears here a little bit, um, talking about U.S. soccer venue choices. One of the things that that the American outlaws um, deal with on a daily basis is, you know, where games yep. are hosted, right, for both the men's and the women's team. Um, yep. and, what, in what ways, 
do you agree with U.S. Soccer's choices for venues in key games, you know, whether qualifiers or Gold Cup, um, for friendlies, whatever? What changes do you think you were, you would make if, if you were to become U.S. Soccer president? Sure. Um, well, I think, obviously, as a, that's kind of a backdoor way to say, what do you think the choice of the Costa Rica game, right? <laughs> you know, in terms um, – who knows what really happened there? What I do know is, again, this goes back to transparency and ethics and the way I would do it. There would be an ethical wall set up between the business arm um, and and the competitive arm. Uh, and so there's absolutely no question that in competitive matches, qualifying matches, uh, the competitive the choice of where the stadium would be would be where the, the, the team, the on-field team, the national teams, have the best chance of winning. And you can put steps in place to ensure that. Um, one is to make sure that the national team coach is consulted every time in the planning and the, and, and the national team staff. Um, you know, obviously, U.S. soccer needs to have a, a revenue base and to generate money, but never at the expense uh, of, of of the competitive part and and the national team, so so that's one thing. I think what we what we want to do is we want to you know utilize the largest stadiums that we can um, to get the largest amount of American fans there in uh, you know in 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 markets that will be friendly uh, to to the U.S. national team for sure. Um, we, we ideally also want to have those games around the country, you know as long as it meets those parameters. And we want to make sure the field conditions for both men and women are uh, equal and safe at all times. One thing that's really important, of course, that it has become an issue this year since the women signed the CBA, it, the recent CBA, it's how many times they've been forced to play on artificial turf. And that has to stop right away. And so uh, I hate artificial turf. I hated playing on it during my career. Can't play into space injuries. My 15, my I'm sorry, now 19-year-old son, who was a freshman in college, was a development academy player who, at age 15, played 31 out of 32 games in a season on artificial turf. And at the end of that year, uh, he had no structure, no no pre-existing structural problems in his orthopedic makeup, and he had an L5-S1 bulging disc at age 15, and almost had to engage in major back surgery. So I am not a big fan of artificial turf. It's necessary in certain parts of the country, including mine, you know, New England and North Northeast. It's a necessary evil, if you will. Um, but I don't like it. And what I do know is what I've said to the women, uh, national team players, and what I've said to the women, uh, you know, on, on the athlete council is that they, I pledge right away to change whatever provision is in that contract, which is either indefinite or it is, uh, you know, a, a, a loophole, but they will never play more often than the men on artificial turf. And for both of them, I hope it's never, right? Um, uh, because it's just not, it's just not as safe. And, and national team games generate enough money uh, to play on grass. And that segues into the question, well, will you never play in a city that has a stadium with turf? Uh, and the answer is, uh, yes, we'll still play in those cities. Um, I think U.S. soccer can fund, given the gates and other uh, promotional dollars that come in um, related to those games, that if Chelsea and Juventus uh, and, and Man U, when they come here for their friendlies in the summer, can demand when they play in stadiums that have grass, like Gillette Stadium here in, in Foxborough, 
um, and it costs $100,000, $200,000 to put in temporary grass, well, we can do that in those games as well. So that's a little bit on that one. Um, okay. Um, so we're 20 minutes in uh, to our American Outlaws Forum with uh, Steve Gans regarding U.S. Soccer Presidency uh, campaign that he's currently involved in. Um, we got a lot of good fan questions coming through from, from American Outlaws. Um, we're going to start um, with Anna in American Outlaws, Kansas City. Steve, you were the first one to start campaigning to be the next U.S. Soccer President. What were the main reasons you wanted to run before for the disaster in Trinidad? Anna? I just want to say for the record, I don't know Anna in Kansas City, but she's now a friend of mine because uh, that almost looks like a softball question, but I love it, Anna. Um, yes, uh, sometimes when I meet with delegates, I, I joke and I say, did I mention I, I, I announced in May and everyone else announced in October? Yes, I was the first one in, um, for sure. And again, I did it for democracy's sake. There were very significant people that wanted me to run. You know, I, I respectfully said no, because it wasn't the right time. And then after the Klinsman thing, I did it. Um, and, you know, there was a democratic principle at stake. Uh, I knew, I've known the incumbent for 27 years, no, no strengths and weaknesses. You know, I was a World Cup lawyer when he was the number two guy at World Cup. It didn't look like anybody was doing it. And this was just the right thing to do for democracy. But again, I would say that I just really felt that I saw things, I saw cracks. You know, I was horrified by any, Everyone else in October uh, never would have predicted it, um, didn't want to predict it. Um, um, but when it happened, again, the distinguishing point is that wasn't, you know, an event frozen in time. That was a manifestation of all the things I was talking about, you know, back in May and, and, and talking about with people for years. Chaos in the youth system, dysfunction, unhappy players, um, bad choices, a national team coach. And I don't mean Bruce, but but uh, respectfully, I never would have um, – uh, pick Jurgen Klinsmann. And so I thought I could do better le a leadership job. I'm the kind of leader that the buck stops with. I would have shown up at the congressional hearing that was called after the FIFA scandal. I would take responsibility for results. Uh, I, I'm uh, open in terms of dialogue uh, and, and will always have an open mind. So I just felt I could do better. This game's ingrained in my soul uh, since, you know, my dad came from Germany and dragged me to semi-pro games when I was two and three, and it, it's never stopped from there. And so, um, you know, I feel like I'm always born to do this, and, I, and it, it's a critical time for U.S. soccer. So um, that, in a nutshell, is why I decided to do it. Great. Steve in American Outlaws Portland asks, what are some ways that fans can help steer the teams and the federation in the right direction? Oh, well, uh, it's a, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, thanks, Steve. Look, like your name. Um, even though it's common. <laughs> um, what, I, what I would say is that uh, I, I, I analogize the fans to the state associations on, on the youth and adult level, to the athlete council. They are people in the trenches, right, that are dedicated to this game that can provide information and give feedback to U.S. soccer. My style of management is collegial. Instead of top-down, it is iterative. And before decisions are made, the, the input from the different constituencies. And again, for instance, I, I give the Development Academy again, the types of nonsensical edicts that, that came down from Chicago, if I could have given my input on some of those, I feel, and others in the trenches, I, I don't think that they would have made some of those nonsensical rules. 
I feel that's the same with state associations and members of the Athletes Council. I feel I'm guessing that's the same with you when you guys scratch your head. Surely, let's say, if you had been canvassed about where to play the Costa Rica game, I think the majority of your membership would have picked elsewhere. So uh, I think the dialogue with the fans who are unbelievably dedicated, and I have experience with this, by the way, because you know, I've, I've been with the pro club as an executive as well as my little tiny time as a player, but, but I had obviously more time as a front office executive, and that was really more um, significant in the sense of, by better contribution to the team, you know, obviously true when you're the last guy on the team, um, but as more significant in the front office. It always, we, we, I was with the, Bal the original Baltimore Blast of the Major Inter Soccer League, and, you know, one of the model franchises in the history of, of soccer in this country. And one of the things that, that distinguished it and is used to this day was our community relations model and engaging the, the fan club of the team, and by extension here, of the national team, is essential. It's essential for continuity and engagement. It's essential for feedback. Um, and so, again, it's it, like so much it's the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do. So um, I, I, I think having a mechanism to have uh, regular dialogue and get feedback from the fans, whether it is through surveys, liaison at U.S. Soccer, we're going to do a top-to-bottom review of U.S. soccer and how it relates to constituencies, um, whether it's to me directly. And I pledge, you know, right now, I'll engage in teletown halls and uh, whatever, these kinds of um, phone calls and these kind of events and, and even in-person uh, events uh, as president because there's no arrogance, uh, there's no know-it-allness. Uh, in this. We're all on it together. Everyone needs to be respectful. You know, everyone wants the same goal here, and that's a successful uh, you know, soccer program, uh, a worldview, international respect about U.S. soccer. And that kind of plays right into the next question. Um, Jack from American Outlaws Austin asks, would you be willing to do a state of the federation for the fan each year, and how do you think that would benefit um, you know, the average American Outlaws member? I'm sorry, State of the Union, what? For? Yeah, State of the Federation for U.S. Soccer. Would you be willing to do that? You mean a, a, a fan event? Yeah. You're saying? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, and, and that's not blowing smoke because, you know, the, 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 the Blast Community Relations model, I, I feel, and I gave it to the MLS team, and I actually offered it to MLS at the beginning of MLS, and the team took it, but the, but the league office didn't take it, and and I think that's why you had so much inconsistency at the beginning in 1996 and going forward in MLS because um, uh, and, and the team that took it, it was the New England Revolution, was distinctive because it didn't do well on the field, but it was the number two team, I think, to the Galaxy um, in the first three years in attendance. And um, yeah, absolutely, I would commit to that. It, again, right thing to do, smart thing to do. All right, again, we are here with Mr. Steve Gans. We're halfway through our forum. We're getting a lot of good questions from, uh, from American Outlaws throughout the country. Um, make sure you tune in and ask and hit that button on the, on the bottom right of your screen and make sure you send them straight to the panelists and we will try to get to all the ones that we can. Um, kind of jumping over here, Steve. Um, the women's game has grown considerably um, in the United States, but recently the perception is that the rest of the world is catching up in terms of talent, 
talent development and professional opportunities for women to play the game. How do you continue to keep the U.S. ahead of the rest of the world? Right. So, uh, you know, it's a good thing that the rest of the world is, is um, devoting resources to it, right, because that's, that, that's really a sociological issue, right, that about the, the opportunities through Title IX that we have here, um, you know, that principle should spread around the world. You know, we see that geopolitically. Uh, so the women are great. Um, and, and, and we're going to keep them on top. And, and one of the things I'd say about that is what we know now is that the working conditions issue, for some crazy reason, the fact that we're still talking about it is kind of crazy, but, but they're not even, uh, in all cases. And, uh, I met with them, the, the, the athletes council, in October, right before the Panama game, and again, that was right after the New York Times did a story about uh, how many how many times the women have been uh, forced to play an artificial turf just after uh, signing the CBA, and you know, it's just flat out wrong. Um, and 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 we know also that the risk for women to play an artificial turf or uh, unsafe field conditions, relatively unsafe field conditions, is much higher than for men, right? Because women get higher. Uh, incidences of, of concussions and ACL tears. So one of the things we can do uh, is <clears throat> keep them on top, uh, you know, because they are on top, but keep them on top by um, improving their working conditions, equalizing it, making sure the per diems are equal. And by the way, I, I don't take cheap shots. So um, my understanding of why the per diem wasn't equal, it really had to do with a lag in, in um uh, they were originally equal, and then the, 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 the CBAs between the men and the women, they're staggered by three years. And so what happens is, a, is that the women and men were equal, is my understanding, the men had a, a new one before this year, and then that changed, and they didn't equalize it with the women. Well, so I don't think there was bad intent there, uh, but I do think, it, again, stupidity in the contract drafting, because, you know, what I would put in there is, is, is a clause that makes clear that um, that uh, whenever one side gets an increase in, in benefits, the other side automatically automatically gets it. And um, so, you know, that that's another way to do it. And obviously, in my regime, I I, I commit to pay parity um, between men and women. You know, it's a complex issue in this regard. The women are employees; the men are not. So, you know, again, I don't just grab sound bags and say I'm going to rip up that contract. Uh, without looking at it, but what I can say is I'm going to I'm going to commit to pay parity. You know, the women are extraordinary. I just sat down. Um, you know, I was in Philadelphia and I, I sat down with Cindy Parlow Cohn, and she's just a force of nature. She's incredible. I mean, very challenging. You know, she wanted to ask me questions about my candidacy, and she was direct and thorough. And you know, you know, you, you know, when you sit down with someone and um, and and you say stop me if you've heard this. You might notice, and and people nod their head and they're and they're um, they never do it because they don't want to be disruptive. And but she said, hey, I've read everything about you. You don't have to tell me. I'm very thorough. So she wasn't just thorough. She's very passionate uh, and so dedicated to this, this sport. And so we're going to get women involved um, at those levels uh, more, and that passion will be translated down, and we will get their perspectives as well. Um, this segues a little, but. Women, girls do not always have a dream achievable in their minds because it's not just playing professionally, but it's also being able to be a coach for their lives, DOCs or college or being an administrator. 
And by doing that, getting, getting the women's perspective and getting women in the game in numbers that actually, at those levels, that actually represent their, their, their participation and contributions, that's another way to keep the women on top. Absolutely. So it's obviously a critical, a critical time in U.S. soccer. Uh, the men are out of the World Cup. They don't have a coach. The women have Chief Lee's Cup coming up and then obviously the World Cup next summer. Um, what qualities and characteristics at this point in U.S. soccer would you prioritize as when hiring the next coach um, for both the men's and the women's if you were elected U.S. soccer president? Right. So, well, the women's job is not open right now. So, but, you know, so let's let's talk about the men's because that's going to be a huge choice. Um, so, what I'm going to do there is um, I'm going to say that uh, be, be careful in this regard um, because, in fact, my style again is inclusive. This is not going to be a, an autocratic decision. We're going to get a committee together, a technical committee of people with, with, with substantial technical backgrounds, former national team players and otherwise, that, that focus very much in their lives on the technical part of it. Um, you know, in fact, I, I have through, you know, I've done everything in this game except be a professional referee. And, um, you know, I, in fact, uh, uh, have been um, presumptively retained to pick a coach and a, and a uh, uh, you know, a, a manager and a, a technical advisor. Um, but uh, I would never substitute my judgment. Uh, this is something that the, a technical committee is going to advise the board on, and um, that's the approach. Uh, I am steeped in this game, though, and I go back 40 years, not 20, 25, but 40 since I was a kid, since I was like 12, uh, and I, I've studied this game forever in terms of, uh, for instance, um, foreign players or coaches coming here. And what I will say, you know, people have asked me, well, who, who are you going to uh, hire? Who do you have in mind? And, um, you know, I can tell you who I don't have in mind. Uh, I, I'm not going to – I don't think that's the right way to go. I, I will say this. I have a strong sense of how to approach it. Um, and, and I'll say this, that through my experience, uh, the presumptive pluses of an American coach and the presumptive negatives are the inverse of what the presumptive positives and negatives of an international coach are. Let's talk about the international coach. The international coach or manager has, that we might pick might have, more, have had more of a track record of success internationally, um, coaching, managing world-class players, and, and having success in the World Cup and let's say the Euro, for example. Um, but the downside, and I know this in my heart as, as a kid, uh, since being a kid, because that's how it works when you bring players over here, uh, is how are they going to how are they going to uh, um, you know adapt to the American uh, system? Sometimes they come there. And they have no idea how vast the country it is, how much travel there is, how, much, how often you're on a plane, artificial turf. Sometimes they don't take it seriously, but certainly players. Um, I can give you examples of stars near the end of their career came here and got it, you know, that, that they needed to promote the game here, and they made the community appearances and tried hard. And I can tell you about players who came here and uh, were on holiday, if you will, as they say. And so... Uh, that's the potential negative that they won't adjust. I'm old enough to know that Adidas 
brought over someone named um, Detmar Kramer from Bayern Munich in the mid-1970s, believe it or not, 40 years ago, to save the national team and, and the program here. And he was gone within a year because he did not know what he bargained for. The opposite is true with respect to an American coach. An American coach, the positive is, well, the negative is that he, on the, on the men's side, he may not have that experience in a World Cup or that success uh, or managing players like that, you know, the, the world-class players that the other one will have. But he knows what the American heart is. He knows what the American psyche is. He's used to the travel. He's used to the artificial turf and all those things that make America different. So I think that I will bring a lot to that process, but I want to be clear, like everything else, even my development academy ideas, I can tell you the rule I would change in a minute, but it's not up to me. I'll be in a committee. I'll share my idea. There idea. We'll have a marketplace of exchange of ideas, and hopefully my idea will, will prevail. Um, sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's how I would look at that. Okay, great. Um, with that, kind of sticking with accountability, Casey from AO Lincoln asks, in your, in your questionnaire that you submitted, you wrote, I am committed to being accountable for my actions. Could you expand on that a little, and how, how do you expect to be held accountable? Well, like I said, um, I, I think I'm the type of leader that, that the buck stops with me. As I said at the beginning, um, one example is, you know, Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut, in the midst of the FIFA scandal, called a congressional hearing, and the, and the incumbent did not appear at that. He sent someone else. I think something with that much gravity uh, and in which I would be invited to, as uncomfortable as it might be, in other words, being, you know, grilled at a Senate committee, something I probably never imagined do, doing, um, I would have been there, and I would be there if anything like that happens. Um, I think um, um, I, that that the, the president of this organization should be held accountable for progress made. And, um, you know, I will tell you that this has been a grueling process, um, uh, but, it, but if I'm fortunate enough to win and I finish my first term and I think I've done a good enough job to win um, second term, I hope that I am not unopposed because, again, for democracy's sake. Um, and so in that sense, if the people don't feel that I've done a good job, then I should be voted out. But I will tell you this. If I don't think I've done a good enough job, if there aren't measurable success uh, touch points, then I won't run. You know, then I won't run. So that's the accountability I'm talking about. Um, I think I can achieve a lot here. I think I, I think there are very few Americans that have the perspective and background at, at every single level, from youth to pro, from representing players to representing management, from having been a player to having been in management to advising parents and Premier League CEOs um, and owners even. I think that I bring a lot to the table. But if for some reason I cannot uh, – translate that into measurable progress, then I'll resign or, or not run again. That's the kind of accountability I'm talking about. Again, we are here with Mr. Stephen Gans. Um, he is the U.S. soccer presidential candidate. Um, we're going to switch gears here a little bit, Steve. Um, you brought or you helped bring the 94 World Cup to Boston. Um, a big talking point amongst our membership is U.S. soccer's role in bringing the, the World Cup to the United States. So what, 
what do you see the U.S. soccer's role or your role as potentially president in, in getting the World Cup back to back to home soil? Well, that, that, that's a great question. Um, so just, just 30 seconds or 15 seconds about my role. So I was asked at age 29, I thought, you know, I'd have my pro, pro soccer stint in Baltimore and was cut and released as a player by the Baltimore Blast in the training camp November of 84. And I thought that uh, that was kind of it. You know, my continuous time in soccer would be maybe done and uh, helped, helped my dad um, had build a business to sell some degree prior and then went to law school and joined a firm. And then um, as luck would have it at, at age 29, uh, was tasked with turning around the Boston bid effort, the Boston World Cup bid effort, not Boston as a city, because uh, it's, you know, my beloved city and a great city. But out of 29 American cities bidding for the 1994 World Cup, and we're talking now 1990 because it took that long to process, Boston's bid preparations, the, the, the quality of its bid effort at that point was ranked last, 29th and last out of 29 cities bidding for what was expected to be 12 World Cup sites. As you know, um, it turned out to be tw uh, nine only. Uh, so, so the odds were even um, shorter. And um, it took three years working with a great team, um, but uh, but uh, we did it. You know, I'm very, it's one of the things I'm, I'm proudest of in in my uh, soccer life uh, because I did it for my city and I and uh, and and brought the, the World Cup and, I, and and you know my dad who had come here as an immigrant and was soccer starved, um, you know, got to see the World Cup in person at age 71. So that was just incredible. The um, but, but one thing I want to say about this is I am I don't have a big ego. So World Cup efforts are um uh World Cup efforts are um you know far along and um there is not one individual that's bigger than the US fan base and everybody dedicated to soccer in this country. And so anybody that takes that position or that view I think it's a slippery, slippery slope. We should get that World Cup, you know, for so many reasons. You know, that a lot of the traditional competitors are not there, um, and and um, and this time. And secondly, it's the first World Cup with 48 uh, teams. And so, uh, what other country with existing infrastructure than us is appropriate for that? So here's what I want to say: I have. A lot of World Cup bid experience from many from the from the stadium and venue bid committee side, the organization side. Um, but is my hope? I have no big ego in this that I don't I don't have to be a, be the figurehead or someone that has to get in there and do turnaround or otherwise. I will be there to help in any way to help with my you know legal business uh, advisory and actual World Cup expertise. But, but, you know, with it far along, hopefully we will be in very good shape, and um, I, I don't have to inject myself into that, um, hopefully, in a way that uh, takes control. I'll be there if needed. Absolutely. All right, we, uh, we have about 15 minutes left, so we're going to jump around a little bit more here. Um, Patrick from AO Toledo asks, what is the most important thing in the future to invest U.S. soccer's money into? You talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, the amount of surplus the U.S. soccer has at the moment. Where where would you envision putting that money? 
Sure. Uh, you know, again, you can't you can't take all of the surplus, right? Because you know that that would be fiscally irresponsible. But I think you can you can take a responsible portion of it and you know give give it to the respective state associations. You know, we have to build back um, the the adult side of this game as well. For most people, their playing careers age at end at age eighteen. So the adult side for people nineteen to seventy or even older, that's there. And sometimes it gets neglected, and it shouldn't. Okay, so that that's one thing. Um, give it back to uh, the state associations for their programmatic stuff. Some of it. Um, the 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 other part is that, and it was you know an idea of of certain state association presidents, but we want to use it for field maintenance and and for building fields, and also um, building maybe some small sided fields in inner city and urban areas to bring in people. To this sport, who otherwise can't play it, we're missing a lot of a lot of players, and um, we want to provide opportunity. Um, another aspect I want to use it for is to ameliorate, not eliminate, ameliorate, lessen the burden of pay to play. Uh, there's nothing more heartbreaking than someone who wants to play in our system and just can't afford it, and then even a well-meaning club that wants to uh, provide a scholarship only has so much to go around. So we want to devote to that because it's the right thing to do. There's not one kid, ideally, uh, who wants to play this great sport who should be prevented from doing so. Um, and then also, I think some of it, either some of that or some U.S. soccer funds one way or another, whether it's the surplus, the A&E money uh, for the NWSL League or just operational money, should be used to support the NWSL in uh, in greater numbers, because that league does need some more support. I know from having represented an NWSL player and, and the contract, um, you know, numbers that, that most players, including herself, Rachel Wood, um, received, and also I know it having represented NWSL team, um, the Boston Breakers. And so I think that league needs more support from U.S. soccer, and, and you know, I want to give U.S. soccer credit for supporting it. But I think to get that league and keep it as the best league in the world and get it to a level that's truly uh, viewed as professional in all, all levels and the best in the world, we need to support NWSL in greater numbers. Absolutely. So you talk about in your platform um, hosting a U.S. Soccer Summit within 60 days of becoming U.S. Soccer President. What are some of the things that you would uh, bring to this forum and, and what would you hope to get out of it? Well, let me let me say that, that we're absolutely going to do that. I just want to say that that um, the first thing I'm on record uh, about tackling is um, is a different sort of well, not a summit, but a, a task force or a committee, and that is um, something for the youth level. Uh, of course, the youth level. You know, I'm sure the American Outlaw members they're interested in the youth level as well because I think we know that everything in this game is organic, and um, you can't focus on the DA, for instance, and the national team without focusing on the youth. If you do, you, you know, you're, you're ignorant in the literal sense because you're not going to produce players at the end of the pipeline if there's chaos going on, right, at early years in youth. And there, there is chaos going on, but uh, in, in particular, at many levels, but in particular, um, fighting between sanctioning organizations uh, beneath the top line of 4 million registered players. Uh, and it, it's a you know it's a business fight, it's an economic fight for the same players, leagues, and clubs, and so that needs to be solved because it's contributing to the 75% attrition rate uh, at 
at U13, and it needs to be solved for the good of the game to, to, to solve the chaos and stop the chaos that's causing so much misery in the youth game. So that's the first thing I'm going to tackle, may not be solved. The summit in 60 days, that's going to bring in all constituencies uh, to address um, issues of common interest and interest uh, issues of particular interest. I can tell you in this, what is it, May, so we're talking seven, now it's eight, eight plus months. I have met so many people with great ideas, and those ideas will be, uh, will be considered, invited, uh, debated, because we're going to take the people that really care about moving this game forward and listen to them. It doesn't mean every idea is going to be adopted, but they're going to be listened to. Never going to have a know-it-all, we-know-better-in-Chicago um, attitude again. Uh, I'll take a dim view of any employees that do that. And the, these decisions about the future of the game will not be done in a vacuum in a conference room. They will be done um, iteratively, iteratively. And, again, all aspects of the game that are, that are affected will have input about future decisions. In a race that has a lot of candidates, some some with a great deal of name recognition, Bryn from AO Minneapolis St. Paul would like to know how you have distinguished yourself from other candidates and what's impressed you from the other candidates. Right. Um, so what what's impressed me about the other candidates? Yes. Okay, sure. Yeah, I think I think obviously what's impressed me is is um I mean, there are four national team players, right? That in and of itself is something we all hugely respect. Um, you know, I get the player's perspective. I, I was a pro player for a minute. You know, I was a college player, and then I came back from injuries and was a pro player for a minute. Never embellish it. Um, then I was gone, you know, uh, signed at 24, cut at 24, and it was all over. And so um, – and I think I get the player perspective because I've represented players, including a national team player, and I think I've done things, in, including trying to form an alternative players' union to end the MLS lawsuit in 2001 um, for the good of, by the way, altruistically, not just for the players, but for the good of the game because it was being held back. Um, so I get all that, but even if I hadn't been injured, you know, I wouldn't have come close to the national team. Uh, I didn't have that talent. So I have huge respect for um, the national team players. For sure. Um, with respect to people that um, bring more of a business background, like Carlos and like Kathy, I have huge respect for their success in business. Um, so I guess that's what I would say. What distinguishes me is that this job in particular demands someone with deep and continuous uh, business background um, and success and organizational leadership. And I might say that I'm not only a lawyer, and a law, you know, lawyers do, um, you know, often <laughs> tedious things, but they often do things that are very complex. Um, and so, you know, good lawyers are very highly skilled. But one thing I do know, having left a law firm and then come back, and I was away for 20 years, is lawyers, what lawyers do is they advise, um, and that's not leading an organization. Um, and I have the good fortune of also being a president and a chief operating officer of series of companies. So I think on the business side, it's necessary that this job have that. Um, and I can say that uh, I have, you know, leadership organization. I've, I've led a company of 150 employees as president and COO. 
Um, I have significant business, successful business experience. Uh, so, so, and I've been on boards of the size of, of uh, U.S. Soccer, and and I've and and you know I've counseled you know billion dollar companies as a lawyer. So I, I've got that, and it needs that. It needs someone with business background. But this is not just any hundred million dollar, hundred and fifty employee business organization. It's U.S. Soccer, and therefore it's not enough to just have a, a, a business person. It has to have someone with. Uh, deep and continuous and broad soccer background. And so how do I distinguish myself? Um, you know, it's been dizzying because it looked like it was going to be me against the incumbent, and now the incumbent, Sunil's gone, and it's seven other people. Uh, but as my campaign team has told me, yes, okay, yes, a sixth person is. Yes, you're telling me a seventh person is. Yeah, this, yes, an eighth person eight person. Um, yes, it's, it's messy, but nobody has your... Uh, profile, and that profile is that I have the deep and continuous soccer background, and, along with the leadership organization and deep and successful business background. And I say, with respect to all the other candidates, there are those that have the soccer without the business, and there are those that have the business without the deep and continuous soccer. So I think that's how I, I am distinguished, distinguishable. And one thing I'll just say about that is when I was with the Baltimore Blast. And I date myself, but this is in the early to mid 1980s. Our league, the NASL, was failing, and this league was the league in America. And the contract with CBS and USA Cable Network, when they still had sports, we were outdrawing NBA and NHL teams in respective cities. It was an incredible time. My team, the Baltimore Blast, believe it or not, we won the championship. We were more popular than Baltimore Orioles, which is extraordinary during that time period. Uh, everyone knows what the O's to Baltimore. And and so um, that commissioner at the peak of the league, he, he, Earl Foreman was his name, he retired in his late 60s. And they brought in a very successful business person. He had been a publisher for the Cincinnati Inquirer newspaper. And he didn't last a year. And Earl Foreman had to come out of retirement to be the commissioner again because he didn't get the soccer part. So it's not enough to have a business person. You've got to have the soccer background. Not enough to be a soccer person. You have to have the business background. So that's how I distinguish myself. I think I'm the only one with those qualities. Okay. Combination, combination of qualities. Um, only have time for about one more question, but I, I want to say um, to those listening, we want to welcome um, everybody who's just joined in. We are here with Steve Gans, and uh, make sure if you have a last second question, make sure to jump in real quick. Um, but I want to I want to ask something that kind of pertains to more of our membership. Um, sure. The game day experience is something that is extremely important to our members. Um, everything from the tailgate to the, you know, what we call the night before party, um, mm -hmm. the in stadium, you know, the the ability to enjoy yourself in the, in the, in the stadium. So what do you think, what ways would you as U.S. soccer president help engage us and help facilitate our ability to enjoy and support the team as loud as we can. Sure. So first of all, what I'd say is um, I absolutely uh, um, champion the tailgating um, and uh, responsible tailgating, obviously, but tailgating and um, interactive uh, um, fan events for those going to the game beforehand around the stadium and for those who might not get into the stadium. Um, that, that's a huge thing, and I would want to engage corporate sponsors, sponsors of U.S. soccer to promote those stuff. It's a way for them to have a touch point with, with fans, but we want to make the experience as, as, as good as possible. 
Um, uh, one, one idea, you know, just sort of brainstorming right now is I think that it's done all the time by Cooperstown in baseball is get, uh, exhibits from the soccer hall of fame and make them mobile and put them on the road and have an interactive display and, um, you know, and, and set up for fans to go in and to touch and see and look at memorabilia, those types of things, you know, I'm not creative enough maybe to think of all of them, but we want to make this an interactive, you know, fun zone fan experience for the outlaws, for kids, for everyone. And one thing I do want to say about the games themselves for the outlaws, I am really concerned about the pricing of tickets you know, when you ask about the surplus, I suppose indirectly, given how much that surplus is there, do we really need to, to charge so much for, for even the cheapest ticket? I think that needs to be looked at. We ought not to sh shut out any um, dedicated fan that wants to go to the game, whether they're existing outlaws or potential fans or young kids or inner city kids that otherwise can't, can't afford it. So um, we want to make this game day experience great. Uh, and, and also accessible. Okay, great. Um, well, Steve, we have, um, before you're able to give your, your closing statement, I just want to uh, thank all the American Outlaws who, who chimed in tonight. This video will be available on our website, theamericanoutlaws.com, um, on our election page. You can jump in and, and, and see some of the talk from our conversation tonight. Um, and with that, Steve, I want to give you an opportunity um, a minute or two to just kind of summarize and and give our membership um, kind of your your lasting thoughts heading into uh, in, into the election next month. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. No, I would like to. So you know, I just came out of Philadelphia um, where we were we were at the uh, coaches convention and there were two candidates things. Um, by and large, it went unbelievably well. Uh, we got commitments from voting delegates and. Great enthusiasm. My meetings were extraordinary. My spotlight session, which was a one-on-one, -on -one, was extraordinary. Um, uh, I would have said it was perfect, but in the candidates forum, I was a little under the weather and uh, um, wasn't completely on my A game there. But still uh, got delegates to commit to me afterwards and us. Um, and so we're really excited going into this election. We think we're in great position and the momentum is great. We think that people do recognize that the, the job of the president needs confluence of soccer, deep and continuous with leadership organization business um, experience. And what I can say is my um, leadership style will be inclusive of all members of U.S. soccer. By the way, I know that you have two, uh, don't you have two, um, uh, uh, two, two people from your group in the, in the, in the council, in one of the councils? Is that potential, correct? Yes. Yes. You, you do, you say potential or you do? Yes. Yeah. There's been a little bit of a gray area working with U.S. Soccer on that, but okay. Well, I'll get to, I'll get to know that better, but I can commit, Chris, that 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 will continue. I think that's a great thing. The fans' voice should be there. Fans' voice should be there. But you know what I would say is this is a crucial time. It needs someone that's really experienced leading an organization and someone who really understands soccer, because um, these issues are unique to soccer. And um, you know, the, the fans matter the most. You know, we've proved it, our, our loyalty to them in Baltimore, and, and um, you know, I, I truly believe it. Uh, I am gr gratified. I know that the outlaws want change um, because, again, it, at least, you know, most of the chapters, because I know that American Outlaws fans on their own, um, someone sent me a tweet uh, in, in, I think it must have been June or July, I guess July, at, at one of the games, and, and then in another game, 
So they want, and I've gratified that they were one of the first to sort of uh, promote my candidacy or, or sanction it and say that they wanted change and they wanted me to win. So I'll always be, no matter how this turns out, gratified uh, to the American outlaws. Where we are now is, is it looks like we will get literal sense change because the incumbent was not running, is not running. But I, I think there are three choices now. There's, there's the choice that we get changed that's the right change and leadership and, and responsible change. That's one. There's a choice that we could get the wrong change. And a third one, but without being um, sort of paradoxical, we could get change that really doesn't amount to change. And, you know, my hope is that the people listening out there, um, uh, you know, and otherwise realize that the responsible change is the right change. And I, and I think for all the reasons discussed tonight that, I, that I'm the candidate. But in any, any event, I really do, I will never forget the, the early support I got from certain members of the outlaws, so I appreciate it. Great, well, thanks again, Steve, for taking the time tonight. Uh, we really appreciate it, and uh, we certainly wish you the best of luck um, come next month and throughout the rest of your campaign. Thank you so much, Chris, I really appreciate it, and thanks for the opportunity, and thanks for everyone for uh, viewing or listening, thanks. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we uh, concludes our session. Make sure you join in um, later uh, this week. I believe tomorrow we have Eric Winalda on. And uh, make sure you check out the website, uh, theamericanoutlaws.com, and check out the U.S. Uh, US Soccer Presidency Candidate Forums. And uh, we will talk to you guys soon. Have a great night, Steve. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.